Hello out there. Welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we take a deep look at opportunity in America today and how housing fundamentally shapes that opportunity. This is your host, Mike Kaprowski. I'm the National Director of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. Research is increasingly showing that housing is a foundation for virtually everything. It predicts what kind of neighborhood you'll grow up in, the quality of school you'll attend, your access to transportation and amenities. Housing shapes segregation patterns, the crime levels of your surroundings, job opportunities, exposure to certain health risks, your friends and social networks. Housing policy is school policy, health policy, economic policy, civil rights policy, and more. Few things shape our opportunity more than housing. We have lots of evidence about it, and yet housing is often overlooked by our leaders and our policymakers. Today on episode three, we're going to talk about the intersections of housing and education with Dr. Heather Schwartz. Heather Schwartz is a policy researcher and the associate director of RAND Education. She researches education and housing policies intended to reduce the negative effects of poverty on children and families. She earned her PhD in education policy from Columbia University. Uh, For me, Heather, this is a great honor. Uh, In 2010, you did a study uh, out of Montgomery County, Maryland, and I think it turned into what is one of the most uh, influential studies ever conducted on the connection between housing policy and school policy. And actually, when I... When I first read it, I was the uh, chief of innovation in the Dallas public school system. I wasn't in housing yet. Uh, I was I was an education executive, and it kind of it really opened my eyes that um, if you're going to be an education advocate, you you must be a housing advocate as well. I really became convinced that uh, we can't deal with our school challenges if we're not dealing with our housing challenges. And so um, so your work impacted my career a lot, and so I'm personally just excited to talk to you today. So welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. So my my first question uh, is I just wanted to, I'm curious how you ended up doing the research that you do. I mean, what got you interested in the connections between housing and education? Well, it started actually in college with Amy Stewart Wells' book, Stepping Over the Color Line, which Mm -hmm. was a book that talked about the relationship between housing and patterns of segregation in housing and segregation in schools, which like you just said about your experience in Dallas, I didn't know you worked in the school system, by the way, Yeah, yeah. Um, that the where you live is often where you go to school, which is not rocket science. It's just not a relationship that I had really thought about, the relationship mm-hmm. between urban planning and the location and diversity of the housing stock and how that funnels in as a sort of backdoor education policy um, into where students attend schools. Yeah. And I mean, I've, you know, I've, I've been an education, well, I, I spent several years as sort of a, you know, an education reformer, though I, I reject that label. I like to think my views are a little bit more nuanced than, than one particular camp, but uh, I think people would um, refer to me as, you know, an education reformer. And so I was in, I was in Tennessee in like 2012 to 14 when it um, uh, received the Race to the Top grant from the Obama administration, and then I was in uh, Dallas public school system under a reform-minded superintendent. So I've been part of a lot of the sort of the education reform conversations over the past um, over the past little bit and, and the the talk is usually about you know teacher evaluations and charters and vouchers and test-based accountability um, and, and we could spend a podcast on any one of those but housing policy just struck me as not in that conversation I, I, I have a hard time recalling even a single time that housing policy was even mentioned and so I think you're exactly right to point out that this is this is sort of a, a backdoor housing is kind of a backdoor education policy but it's not really uh, talked about that much I mean is that is that your impression as well that education folks don't talk about housing as much as they perhaps should completely I'm not aware of educators who are spending time and energy focusing on demographic projections and understanding where housing, where new construction is going to be located and at what price points and so forth. I mean, understandably, that's like yet a whole nother discipline to try to go understand. But I also think vice versa. I don't think housers understand very much Mm -hmm. about education. And I had that, that was an eye opening experience for me working at, after reading that Amy Stewart Wells book, that was gosh, like, end of college and then I went to work for apt associates where I worked in the housing division mm-hmm. and we did consulting to public housing authorities uh, around mixed income housing development 
which for me was something I was keenly interested in because it was a form of economic integration via yeah. housing, by mm -hmm. mixing subsidized housing with market rate housing in these large developments. The goal was to create economically integrated neighborhoods. And in, in my mind, then the next step was that that could potentially uh, yield economically integrated neighborhood public schools. But when the, the housing people, meaning from the Public Housing Authority and the consultants and the real estate developers who had been selected to help develop these mixed income housing uh, projects, their understanding of how school districts worked was extremely rudimentary. Mm -hmm. And I think they, from their perspective, it was, let's go to the superintendent and get a concession so we can do special things or get extra resources in school A, which is the school that happens to be closest located to development B. Right. And they just yeah. didn't understand the sort of um, the way the uh, school district system works, that you can't, that, that schools aren't just picked off and done one thing with this school and another with, an, mm -hmm. with, with another. So I think there was an immense amount of frustration be because of the lack of understanding between school districts and real estate developers. Well, and that's why we're doing this podcast <laughs> to, ra <laughs> to raise awareness. No, I mean, I, I, that's exactly right. I mean, we have, and I think there's, in my mind, there's there's sort of a couple different explanations for it. One is just professional silos, right? People thinking, well, that's not in my lane. And then I think there's just a general lack of familiarity with, with the research that there really is a tight connection between housing and education. So that's that's the podcast, right? We, we've established that there is a there's a pretty big disconnect between these two um, sectors, and yet there really shouldn't be. That we, we really have to think about these things in tandem. Okay, so I, I wanted to um, to really dig into this study uh, that you did in 2010. I think you were you were a PhD student when you did this, right? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you did, and I think that uh, this is just uh, again one of the most influential studies ever conducted on the connection between housing policy and school policy. So um, let me just for the audience, let me sort of set up the, the situation and then you can um, talk through the, the study that you set up. But um, this was a study that you did in Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, right outside of uh, D.C. And Montgomery County has uh, one of the most acclaimed school systems in the country. And it, it serves low-income kids particularly well. But what's not often known about Montgomery County is that it operates the nation's oldest and largest inclusionary housing program. Uh, basically, uh, they have a policy that requires developers to set aside something like 12 to 15 percent of all of their apartment units to be affordable, to be sold at below market rate. So they essentially have a, a scattered site policy where their affordable housing isn't uh, necessarily clustered in one part of town, it's scattered across the county. Uh, but these set-asides aren't just for uh, moderate income people. They have a really unique feature which enables them to provide units that are affordable to extremely low-income people. And that feature is that they allow the housing authority in Montgomery County to buy one-third of those set-aside units and operate them as federally subsidized public housing. So what this leads to is you have low-income people well below the poverty line living in mixed-income communities alongside wealthy households. You have a low-income family in federally subsidized housing paying like you know 400 bucks a month um, per month in rent, and they're living next to a wealthier family paying maybe you know 2,000 a month in rent. And this is a notable policy because it promotes economically integrated neighborhoods. So it's basically saying, hey, we're not going to cluster poor families with other poor families. We're not going to cluster rich families with other rich families. We're going to use local policy and federal dollars to promote diverse and inclusive communities. And then here's where the school piece comes in. As Heather said, most kids in America go to school based on where they live. We have attendance boundaries. So that poor family that's living in a mixed income uh, neighborhood in Montgomery County, uh, their child is zoned to a school with other poor children and other wealthy children. So through housing policy, Montgomery County was able to promote more integrated schools. So then Heather, you come in, you see this situation, this very unique policy, the oldest and largest inclusionary zoning program, uh, and you decide to study this. So I'm hoping you can kind of talk to our uh, listeners about what is what is the longitudinal study that you set up and what were the types of questions that you were looking to answer through this? 
Well, I wanted to see if students who are living, children who are living in public housing that was in wealthier parts of the county and so attended public schools with a very few fellow students who qualified for free or reduced price meals. I wanted to see if those students that were living in public housing outperformed their fellow comparable uh, peers who were living in public housing but attending higher poverty schools. So the question was, what is the academic benefits, if any, of attending a lower poverty school? That was really the main focus of the study. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to make apples and apples comparisons of children who are attending those lower poverty versus, in the case of Montgomery County, moderate poverty schools. And the, the way that families were assigned to public housing in Montgomery County allowed me to make that kind of apples to apples comparison. Mm -hmm. And talk about, so there was a low-income families could apply via a lottery um, to get into one of these units, and that basically enabled you to do the randomized study, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So every two years, the housing authority opened its waiting list for a grand total of 14 days, <laughs> during which yeah. thousands of people poured onto the waiting list. You know, the waiting list was, was expunged every two years, so you, it's not that you're a legacy person that just sits on the waiting list for 10 years. Um, so every two years you put your name on this list if you want to get into public housing. You have to you know, be eligible for it, meaning income eligible, pass the criminal background check. And I think there's one other requirement that I'm not remembering right now. Mm -hmm. And so once then a computer calls up your name, says, ah, guess what, Mike, congratulations, there's a two-bedroom uh, public housing apartment on 123 Smith Street that's become available. Are you interested? And you can say no to up to one offer, in which case the computer will then offer you a second offer. If you say no to the second offer, you're, you're kicked off the list. Mm. So most of the people on the list accepted the first offer and moved yep. into, let's say, 123 Smith Street public housing apartment, which may be in a high-rise apartment. It may be in a triplex. It, may, it could be anywhere in the county um, and of quite a wide variety of housing types because the county itself has rural, suburban, and urban uh, portions of this very large place. Mm -hmm. And so what did you find? We found, I found that over time, the children who were in those lowest poverty schools uh, benefited most significantly in math, only suggestively in reading, and that mm -hmm. time was the critical ingredient. In other words, coming in as a kindergartner to a low poverty school and staying in that school up through fifth, sixth grade is what where I found the greatest benefit. Mm -hmm. So by fifth grade, by sixth grade, those students were starting to catch, those kids living in public housing were starting to catch up. They still hadn't caught up, but they were starting to catch up to their non-poor peers who were living in Montgomery County. So there was almost a, I guess you could call it a dosage effect, that the, the more years you spent in an integrated school. The better um, you did. The better you did. Yeah, interesting. And so, I, should, I should say these yeah. were all elementary age children. I didn't study okay. middle or high schoolers. Okay. So so basically, and let me let me characterize this and you tell me if I get it right. So through a housing lottery, some low-income kids ended up being zoned to low-poverty schools, and other kids ended up being zoned to schools with significantly higher poverty. And it basically came down to whether or not you, what, what the lottery verdict was for you. And the poor kids in the low-poverty schools did much better than their peers who attended the higher-poverty schools. Um, and I think in the study you mentioned that the you found that the achievement gap was actually cut in half. So this was this was a a housing policy, a local housing policy that used federal housing dollars to drive better student outcomes. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Were you surprised by this? Not once I saw how successful the housing policy was. Once I saw that, and when I say successful, I mean. Here was scattered site public housing that was in truly mixed income communities. And I, mm -hmm. this, by the way, Mike, the audience for this is primarily people who work in housing, correct? 
Uh, it's actually both. It's it's a pretty multi-sector audience. Okay. Yeah. So I had so I'll I'll I won't get into too much housing jargon as a consequence. Um, <laughs> the what I had been working on the mixed the kind of mixed income development I had been working on, we were talking about you know, majority of families, let's say you're building a 100 unit development, Mm -hmm. over half of those 100 units were reserved for people who were moderate or low income. Mm -hmm. And a minority of the 100 units were for market rate families. Mm -hmm. That's what, that's the world I was coming from with mixed income. But then when I saw how how Montgomery County's inclusionary zoning program worked, I saw it was, it was almost flipped on its head. It was mm-hmm. a m- very small portion of hundred un- this hypothetical hundred units were reserved for low income families, you know, ten percent, twelve percent out of the whole one hundreds, twelve out of of hundred units of the twelve inclusionary zoning homes in that one hundred unit development. Only some of the twelve were for public housing. Yeah. So we're talking about very small rates of poverty in an overwhelmingly non-poverty development, which mm-hmm. when then once, so for, that was the first eye-opener, was that this was uh, integ- integration approached from a whole different end. I was used to thinking of trying to attract middle-class families into poor neighborhoods. Montgomery County works the opposite way. <laughs> it's attracting low-income families into higher-income neighborhoods mm-hmm. and with, via the inclusionary zoning uh, policy. So that was one thing that was really the first once I saw that and then I saw that there was long term residential stability among the public housing families who were living in inclusionary zoning homes that that to me were the two major ingredients that set this up so that the low income kids living in public housing going to these higher performing schools could really reap the benefits. Yeah, really, really interesting. So you, you you mentioned two things that I that I want to hit on. Um, one is Montgomery County itself. So Montgomery County itself is a fairly affluent county, right? So there are um, there's a, there's enough affluence sort of in the county to where you can kind of do more of that um, scattered site approach, where it's um, relatively small percentages of uh, affordable housing that are mixed into market rate developments. And, and you can do that because it's largely an affluent county. What are, what are the implications, though, for uh, other parts of the country where poverty is more pervasive? Right. That it it's strongly implies that the Montgomery County approach does not work for every type of community. Yeah. Um, this is not a Detroit uh, approach. This is not a Camden um, I'm just thinking mm-hmm. of high poverty cities around the right. U.S. St. Right. Louis approach. This is a inclusionary zoning tends to only work economically in high cost housing markets where there's a high demand for housing. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that's an important point is that this is not. Um, you know, sometimes when you when you talk about this study, people will bring that up. Well, Montgomery County is very different than our city, and so I think it's important to talk about um, that. You know, this isn't a one size sort of fits all approach. Um, the, the other question, though, is the stability um, question. And so uh, it wasn't, my, my understanding from the study is that it wasn't just about um, getting to attend a diverse school. It was that um, living in these units uh, gave uh, lower low-income families residential stability, that they stayed in place for longer periods of time. It gave their children stability. They weren't bouncing around from school to school. Um, can you hit a little bit more on the, the sort of the stability aspect of the study? Well, that, yeah, I think that to me, stability is the key ingredient here. Mm. Um, and so, what, which is really notable because in the moving to opportunity study, there was yeah. not the residential stability that one might envision. And so in moving to opportunity, a group of, of households were given a voucher, a housing voucher, that they then had to use to lease an apartment in a census tract with 10% or less poverty. Yeah. And the, the stipulation that came along with this voucher is you need to stay in that apartment for at least a year, at which mm-hmm. point you can move again should you want to. And I don't remember the hype. It was a very high percentage of that group that left after one year. I mm-hmm. want to say it was the majority, although I don't have the, the um, percentage at the okay. tips of my fingers. Um, so there really wasn't, and furthermore, the families that moved with that voucher really didn't go to schools that were much lower poverty 
than the schools they were coming from. Mm. So the this restricted use voucher just did not buy stability that I th- at least I personally had hypothesized before the moving to opportunity ever took off. I had thought it would it would um, that that would be its chief benefit for low-income families, but that's not really how it w- it panned out. So the residential stability thing, I personally think you can't um, undersell its importance and that it's hard to achieve. Uh, You know, poverty is to me an inherently unstable position. It's it's subject to um, a lot of unknowns and adverse (laughs) consequences. So that's one of the, I think, really difficult parts of poverty is it's very hard to make um, strategic plans out in the future when you're overwhelmed with reactive needs. Uh, yeah. So with the by giving families a subsidized apartment that was, affor- that was affordable and that families then stayed in, uh, the families I was studying, they, their average tenancy was eight years long mm. in the public housing homes so that the children could then go to schools that this, these schools are, you know, little microcosms, they're, little, they're environments, and these low-poverty schools benefit in numerous ways from being a low-poverty environment. Low-poverty environments just tend to have, in my view, more stability. There's less churn in educational reforms, staff tend to stay longer, tends to be greater parental uh, involvement, and you're coming to a school where peers themselves are coming fairly prepared for school. So there's like this rein- mutually reinforcing benefits within a low poverty environment that I think is the reason why the students, those kids living in public housing benefited over time from yeah. the low poverty school. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember back to, to my time in education. I mean, we spent, we spent a lot of time um, thinking about how do we sort of mitigate the impact of um, of student mobility, and by mobility, I mean just sort of bouncing from school to school, even within the district, because of housing instability. And you know, there were we well, you know, if we if we standardize curriculum a little bit more, no matter what school they go into, mm-hmm. they'll you know we'll, we'll hit them at the same point that, at which that they left their other school. And so maybe we need to standardize the curriculum a little bit more. Maybe we need to do this. Maybe we need to do that. And it was basically the school district uh, trying to figure out how to mitigate the impact of yeah. housing instability. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, fascinating. Um, there, there's one other, uh, I think, twist of your um, of the Montgomery County study um, that I that I'd love to hit on, and it was the the green zone red zone thing, and that some schools were actually getting more peer pupil and funding. So, the school district, the Montgomery County School District, um, had designated its schools as uh, green zone and red zone, and the the green zone schools were the wealthier schools, and the red zone uh, were the uh, poorer schools. Um, But the red zone schools, the poorer schools, were actually getting, I think it was something like $2,000 more per pupil in funding. And so you actually had more resources going into the poorer schools. But But the public housing kids in the study still performed better in the wealthier green zone schools, even though the red zone schools were being targeted with more resources. Did I did I get that right? Yes. Yeah. And so you have like this this kind of I think flip conventional wisdom on its head a little bit, right? Cuz I think many folks in education would say, you know, that we need to put more resources into uh, poorer schools. And I think most folks would would support that notion including me and I think it's important to note in your study that the red zone schools did modestly better but the results weren't as profound as for the poor children in the green zone schools. So is, is the study sort of suggesting that perhaps a more powerful intervention than infusing poor schools with more resources, it's actually to promote more integrated schools, using housing policy to break up concentrations of poverty. It's more about uh, who you go to school with rather than the resources of the school. Is that a, is that a fair characterization? Yes, it is. And so what was the reaction that you got to that? Because that really sort of rubs up against conventional wisdom in, in education circles. Did you get any pushback from it? I mean, what was the reaction to that? Um, there was a whole mixture of, of reactions. Some people thought, ah, of course, this is a sort of reconfirmed um, mm-hmm. their 
assumptions yeah. about what really matters in schools. For others, I think there was a fair for others who didn't who uh, who didn't like the result for one re- reason or another. I think there tended to be like, well, but this is such a special case. Montgomery yeah. County is so one off. Um, yeah. You know, yes, affluent suburb, yes, this and that. So it's not doesn't really relate to the needs and demands of really high poverty districts um and to a degree they're right this is there's quite yeah. you know i'm not trying and i certainly don't want to write off high poverty schools as like well don't even try anything there because nothing right. can be done i actually i don't think that's true i don't think the research indicates that i think that high poverty schools deserve investments and that they mm-hmm. shouldn't just be um, i don't know ignored so and I think the actually I think the red zone investments that the districts were making that the district was making Montgomery County actually made quite good sense. You know, it was um, full day kindergarten as opposed to half day kindergarten that was rolled out first. Red zone schools, smaller class sizes, more professional development for teachers, and more minutes of instruction in ELA and math. All of which I think make good sense. So I I, I certainly am not trying to disparage the red zone intervention mm-hmm. that the district was pursuing at the time. Yeah. Um, but having said that, I do think that integration is a more systemic, gen- um, deeper intervention. It's just much more challenging to obtain. So I don't want to be pie in the sky that, oh, we, you know, every school should just be integrated. Well, I do believe that that, that, is the, that, that would be the ideal, but knowing the you know the numerous barriers to that and how as a country we are so fragmented and we're highly localized mm-hmm. I don't think that, that that's a realistic um, goal I know I just don't th- I think it's too pat that oh we should just integrate everybody well that's I don't think it's going to happen for a number of reasons I think we can increase integration and I think we should but I don't think that there's a one-size-fits-all that's going to work for every school or every district. Yeah, this this reminds me so much of, of conversations that uh, that I had in, in Dallas. So we were, when I was in Dallas, we were working on um, integrating schools where possible, and we sort of had this, this mantra that we have to walk and chew gum at the same time, that we have to uh, make high-poverty schools work better, and that's where early childhood comes in and professional development and better instruction. But at the same time, where there are opportunities to create more integrated schools, we ought to do that, right? And so it's sort of a, I think, a, a walk and chew gum kind of kind of thing. I mean, in Dallas, it was a, it was at ninety percent of the kids in the district were on free and reduced lunch, um, and so the common refrain was, well, how can you integrate that? But when you dig a little bit deeper, you find that D- Dallas as a whole was not that poor. It was that affluent families were opting out of the district right. altogether. Right. Um, and so, how could you create more opportunities to bring them back? And so, it's just, yeah, you, you really have to do to do both at the same time. So this kind of gets me to my my next um, question. So, and I'm talking in, in very broad strokes here, but there's it seems to me that there's basically two ways to achieve integrated schools. And we know that integrated schools work academically, they work socially, uh, they work morally. Um, and, and there's two big ways you can promote integrated schools, right? Either the school district gets really creative with how it assigns kids to school. And that's kind of what we did in Dallas. We were creating open enrollment schools that didn't have attendance boundaries. Um, our neighborhoods were so segregated that uh, we decided to just um, start to implement more open enrollment models um, where kids could move from different parts of the city. And, and we would actually reserve seats for low-income kids. We'd reserve seats for higher-income kids. And we'd basically create a school that was diverse by design. So there's all that sort of creative, creative enrollment that the school district can do. Or you can use housing policies to create more diverse residential patterns. And if you have more diverse residential patterns, you'll have more diverse neighborhood schools. So, I mean, in your view, is there one strategy that sort of makes more sense than the other? Is there, like, where should we be putting our energy toward? Or should we really try to be pursuing both efforts concurrently? Well, I think it's... um to go for the easy answer, I think we should <laughs> pursue both concurrently. Yeah. I, I really don't think there's a, any one thing that's going to solve the all problems and make all schools integrated. I really don't. And so I, I definitely think the creative p- 
path of towards school enrollment is is a really good idea and if anything maybe a little bit um, easier to to adjust and adopt mm -hmm. but I also think that the housing integration is really important and I don't want to give up on that by any means so I just but you know housing integration is also costly and so it's it's not as if it comes with no price tag um, so it takes a lot of political political commitment in order to fund the say housing vouchers or place-based subsidies um, inclusionary zoning in this case of Montgomery County the costs in a sense were passed on to the developer because mm -hmm. it however and but the developer could afford to do it because they got things in return so the developer would get a density bonus at the time mm. of the study I think that Montgomery County has changed some of their carrots and sticks for the inclusionary mm -hmm. zoning since the time of my study but at the time the logic was developer we county will give you more density you can build more square feet per acre uh, than you otherwise would be allowed to do and in exchange we want you to set aside 12 to 15 percent of these homes to be sold or rented at below market prices so that was the the economics of inclusionary it was not a subsidized program as in hud was not paying for inclusionary zoning homes or maryland or the county mm -hmm. um but like we said inclusionary zoning doesn't work in low-cost housing markets where there just isn't a demand so you know if that density bonus doesn't mean very much for a developer then that carrot isn't very effective in another community just mm -hmm. to give an example so anyway with back to this point about the housing i do think that there should be a, a multi-pronged housing approach which is what like in the housing world we call it supply side and demand side so that, that subsidized and affordable housing be built in certain locations that's supply side mm -hmm. and giving vouchers housing vouchers to people so that they can go shop for for apartments in low poverty places that would be demand side yeah so give, how many municipalities are actually have some sort of inclusionary zoning um, policy and like how how pervasive is this across the country and, and how would you convince more municipalities to to do more of it? Um, there was as I I don't have a recent count of inclusion number of municipalities that have inclusionary zoning but based on a book uh, and I can up the site later in this talk I always think it's 500 localities that's in okay. some states and but mostly counties and cities mm -hmm. who have inclusionary zoning it's a voluntary policy um, that some mm -hmm. choose to adopt I think it would and some you know you can have inclusionary zoning on the books but produce very few inclusionary zoning homes if developers are not coming forward and saying I want to build in your community and I want to build you know let's say the 25 homes that would trigger this inclusionary zoning policy requirement on me so you can have iz policies that don't really yield much inclusionary zoning homes that's a common problem um mm -hmm. and you can have highly productive inclusionary zoning policies which we in montgomery county certainly has been yeah. so it's um to convince them to, to convince communities to do it I think high-cost communities, especially now with the affordability crisis being mm -hmm. so pervasive across the U.S. and on the coasts, I do think this is uh, that cities are very receptive to inclusionary zoning. You know, San Francisco, these places where they really are in full, full-blown crisis: Oakland, San Francisco, mm -hmm. um, New, uh, New York, parts of New Jersey, D.C. Um, I believe that all of them have inclusionary zoning programs now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's just a question of the the policy design and and how how many units are you actually getting out of that policy is sort of the the big question. Right. Um, so so Montgomery County. Um, I mean, it's it's a model of because it, it, so the the opportunity starts at home campaign is very much focused on um, federal policy, and I think that Montgomery County is sort of. A model for how local policy can uh, use federal housing dollars 
in a way to promote inclusive um, neighborhoods and, and drive outcomes um, because of that um, unique dimension that they have in their policy or uh, around the, the public housing authority being able to purchase uh, some of those inclusionary zoning units. Um, can you speak a little bit to that about just sort of the intersection of the, the local policy and the federal housing dollars in, in terms of Montgomery County? Yeah, that was so like you, you nailed it. The, the fact that the housing authority has the um, first right of refusal on 40% of the inclusionary zoning homes in a given subdivision. That's huge. That's yeah, huge. that's, yeah. and frankly, I, I mean, I, we, I looked around. There's no, by the way, there's no national, central, comprehensive inclusionary zoning data. Um, mm. I believe there is a database in development, but I don't know the status of whether that has been fully completed. But okay. so a lot of this is having to ask around among people who know inclusionary zoning or worked on inclusionary zoning. And mm-hmm. I could the only I could find only one other inclusionary zoning program in the U.S. that had that feature of the housing authority having first right of refusal. Yeah. And and that was in uh, Arlington, Virginia. I don't okay. even know if they still have it. Like it was at one point in time that that existed. I don't know if the housing authority still has that first right of refusal. Okay. But like you said, that is the intersection. That's like the key link where the housing authority can then acquire scattered site units to operate at deeply subsidized rates so that yeah. really low income families can be living in market rate developments market rate developments throughout the and in this case anywhere new where new construction occurs in the county is where these yeah. public housing homes will follow so it really has led to a genuinely scattered site approach as opposed to oh well all the public housing is sort of siphoned off over into this right. one quadrant of the locality and it happens to be the wrong side of the tracks yeah yeah, and I think this is, I mean, I think it's a case study in terms of how federal housing dollars can can really help localities do that deeper income targeting and promote um, inclusivity. Uh, I mean, I think when we, when we were talking about inclusionary zoning in Dallas, it was, you know, a lot of people were talking about, well, you know, uh, they were talking about the area median income ranges of what the what those units would be, um, uh, who they'd be affordable to, and there was a lot of talk around, you know, people in sort of the teacher firefighter range of incomes, mm-hmm. and that anything anything lower than that would require much bigger subsidies, and so we really couldn't, through local inclusionary zoning policies, target those ex- those uh, very low income and extremely low income households because it would just require too much sort of um, local subsidy. But here's a model out of Montgomery County that the, the feature is that, um, you know, the federal house or the, the public housing authority can use those federal dollars to, um, to to purchase some of those units. And it allows that uh, that integration for extremely low income people in a mixed income environment. So I think that's a really interesting thing. And I'm, I'm actually surprised that more localities don't have some sort of um, model like that. Um, the other the other idea is that um, inclusionary zoning homes can be marketed to housing authorities for Section 8 voucher recipients to mm-hmm. say, "Hi, here's our here's our address list of inclusionary zoning homes. You know, one, two, three, Smith Street, Apartment B." And if that if there is good relationship or good communication between the the inclusionary zoning administrator and the Section 8 waitlist administrator, yeah, there can yeah. be a nice synergy there for. For voucher recipients, who often have a hard time finding um, price eligible homes for the, to where they can go use their voucher, so mm-hmm. it would be that would be a natural marriage as well, to to include um, so that deeper subsidy via the Section Eight voucher could apply to that inclusionary zoning rental home. Yeah, interesting. So I mean. So we're talking about the sort of the federal housing issue, and I think this is a case where the federal housing dollars work best when you have really thoughtful local policies. But I wanted to ask you a question related to federal housing policy. It's sort of the uh, I like to ask the magic wand question. If 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 you had a, a magic wand, what would sort of be the three to four policies uh, that you'd like to see at the federal level? to help us usher in improvements in, in these areas that we've discussed? What are like, are, are there three to four uh, policies at the federal level that come to mind that you'd really love to see happen? 
How how and much is, how much money can come through my magic wand? This is it's a magic <laughs> wand. It's 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 endless. <laughs> well, I would really like to see um, two things right off the bat. One is uh, funding levels for housing authorities to newly construct public housing in scattered site locations. Hmm. Um, that that would be a big costly wand needed to do it, but that's one that's one thing. So looking at both the supply side and the demand side, we go first to this um, building subsidized housing in particular locations, pr- preferably mm-hmm. desirable locations that are associated with high performing school districts. Second thing is, um, and I know that HUD had been considering this, was essentially a special purpose type of voucher that is Technically, you can port with a Section 8 voucher, meaning you can take a voucher, let's say you receive a voucher in Newark, New Jersey, and you can mm-hmm. port and move with that voucher to California. Mm-hmm. It's a hassle because of uh, because of the administrative burden mm-hmm. of porting, but one can. But the idea of a special purpose housing voucher that's intended to promote uh, upward residential mobility by pairing the voucher with housing search assistance. So in essence, almost like a realtor working with you to say, hey, I'm going to help you. I'm going to hold your hand and help figure out and make it easier for you to even access and see what apartments are on the market. Mo- that, mobility counseling, another term for what you're talking about? Yes. It, yeah. Yes. Um, okay. But I, with a heavy emphasis on the search assistance part, meaning mm-hmm. um, let me drive you over to those locations. Uh, and mm-hmm. show them to you. Let me help you arrange for times for you to meet with the landlord. Let me even help you come up with a list rather than, hi, here's your voucher, here's Craigslist, and go forth um, and have fun finding the apartment on your own via mm-hmm. Craigslist. So um, just to use Craigslist as a silly example, <laughs> but the idea of just any any person using whatever tools are available online to go search for housing, th- this would be much more hands-on. Uh, search mm-hmm. assistance to help people even know what the options are that are not immediately proximate to them where they live currently. Yeah, this is something actually that that uh, our campaign has been thinking about in terms of maybe that's an innovative proposal to advocate for. I'm curious, um, are there particular um, are there particular types of families that you would target through these special purpose vouchers? Because it it feels like a a bit of a Raj Chetty. Uh, thing yes. to me where yeah. we're, mm-hmm. um, and, and of course the, the finding there was that uh, the, the impacts in terms of economic mobility are most uh, most impactful for uh, kids younger than 13. Um, so would this maybe be targeted at, um, you know, low-income uh, pregnant mothers or uh, families with young children? Or is, is there sort of a special population that these would be targeted to? Well, in the magic wand land um, <laughs> here, I do, think, right, I do think it's a good idea to target towards families with children. I don't know, honestly, of the legality of, cut, of age cutoffs, you know, to say, oh, mm-hmm. if you're a family with a 12-year-old, you're in, but if you have a 14-year-old, you're out. I don't, it maybe that's, that's possible. Um, but, and if it is, then it would make sense to target the vouchers to those with the, with younger children, meaning mm-hmm. age zero to say 13. Um, the, what I would say is based on a separate study we did of a Chicago um, uh, mobility program mm-hmm. that resources would be better spent by simply trying to work with the eager volunteers as opposed to trying to convert the hearts and minds of mm-hmm. those who are skeptical and not necessarily interested. And that the, so as a first step in this you know magic wand land where we have special purpose vouchers, that have uh, housing search assistance paired with them. It would be among the, hi, here's what this program is all about. Here's what you would get out of this program. Are you really interested? And if you are, you need to show us that you're actually interested by first doing this thing of showing up in person for this orientation session. And then after the orientation, are you still interested? Okay, then we'll work with you. As opposed to trying to get everybody on the whole Section 8 wait list to automatically be enrolled in this service, in which case you're, I think, spreading scarce resources across a lot of households who, for their own reasons, may or may not be interested in this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. 
I want to, so we're, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to hit a last couple questions. One is, I think, uh, one of the, the obvious questions here, which is, I guess you could characterize it as the, the NIMBY question. Um, you know, a lot of what we're talking about is, um, uh, you know, using housing policy to promote more economic integration. Um, and I don't know if this was something that popped up in the course of your Montgomery County study, but, but I'm curious how we deal with um, potential pushback. Um, and I think, and it's on the housing front and it's on the school front as well. I mean, I, I was uh, looking at the news just earlier this morning and there was an article around New York City and there was um, there were some affluent parents that were pushing back against the prospect of poorer kids of color entering their schools and arguments that it would sort of bring down the rigor of the school. Um, and you have similar arguments on, on the housing side as well. What's your kind of take on how we deal with um, uh, pushback arguments around uh, integration? Well, from a purely pragmatic point of view, I think, of course, there definitely was pushback in Montgomery County. But I think mm -hmm. the pushback was less because of the the direction in which the integration was coming. So in other words, a predominantly uh, market rate development with very few uh, mm -hmm. units reserved for lower income families, as opposed to uh, a 50-50 split where you're coming up against, geez, I'm now the minority in this development as opposed to the majority. So I, market rate person, am in a solid majority, I think lowers the resistance to having low-income families in the development where you live. That's just purely pragmatic. I think the same thing with the schools. When low-income families or low-income students are a very small portion of the schools, I think that middle-class families perceive it as less of a threat and are less. Uh, the NIMBY argument is a little bit weakened. Mm -hmm. It's. I mean, that's not to justify or, or yeah, uh, none defend of this it. Is, none of this is uh, none of this is accurate, right? None of these feelings are these fears are accurate. But um, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. But it is. I mean, it's. I think it's really. I don't think we should wash away the difficulty of crossing color and and class lines. Um, it's it's not easy. And even in places that are where the people who are there are there because they're committed to integration. So, for example. Um, this is just anecdotal, but in a charter school that I worked with that was committed to economic integration, there was definitely tensions within the school between the middle class parents and the parents of, of with low incomes over hot topics like student discipline policies and academic tracking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's... This is not to say there's, you know, the good people and the bad people. This was really understand within the school. It was very understandable. Each side had very understandable concerns. Um, so it was, and it was tricky. It was hard to work through, and it took a lot of talk. And I just want, I just, so I don't want to wash away like, oh, integration is just, you know, a snap of a finger. Um, if you can just get it, then it's done. I think it's a project. Once, even once you get over the hurdle of getting people in the same school who are from, say, different classes or different racial groups, once you've achieved the quote desegregation, to use to refer back to Amy Stewart Wells, mm -hmm. then there's the project of actual proactive integration, yeah. and which I think is extremely valuable and yields wonderful outcomes. I mean, I think it's worth it. It's just I don't want to um, undersell the difficulty of integration. It is a proactive process. Yeah, re I think r really important point. We would always, in, in Dallas, when we were doing this work, we would always say that, you know, getting, this is sort of a crude way to say it, but getting the body count right isn't enough. Mm -hmm. It's not enough to just have a diverse um, student body. It's it matters a lot what happens after the bell rings, right? right? Is is the um, is the curriculum, uh, you know, fostering uh, diverse interactions? Um, I mean, there's there's all sorts of um, there's all sorts of examples of when you have uh, uh, when you have a, a diverse school that maybe the affluent families can dominate the PTA right. and they can start mm -hmm. to dominate the decision making that happens in the schools. And you have to be really intentional mm -hmm. about making sure that diversity is seen as an advantage and that it's prioritized in in everything that the school does. Um, 
really important point there. So I want to end and and kind of make the make the full circle back to um, the connection between housing and education. And hopefully this this podcast has uh, helped both housers and educators and everybody in between um, kind of understand the, these really deep connections between the two issues. But if there was if there was one thing that you could say to educators to get them to pay more attention to housing, what would it be? I know it's a. I'm, I'm, these are tough questions. Yeah, I'm, think, I'm thinking aloud here. I'm just. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm thinking about your question. I personally think that where it's. I don't think it's just, it's just. Hey, every teacher, you should be getting up to speed on housing policy in your community. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. it's really about the system leaders. I would say every superintendent and every public housing authority executive director, and a director of housing community planning within locality X. They should be talking to one another regularly. I don't mean weekly, but I mean they should be meeting several times a year to understand what the relationship is between where their housing is located and where students are attending schools and what the projected uh, population changes are going to be and how that will influence school enrollments and whether buildings are sh- should be closed. That's Those are just sort of the nuts and bolts. But then beyond that, sort of step two would be thinking how can we proactively help schools become more integrated in our community? What kind of steps can we take through housing, through neighborhood planning to help that happen? Mm-hmm. So I would say that that's the, con- that's the level at which the conversation, every houser and school person should be talking to each other, um, not necessarily down at the classroom level or you know that every staff member of a housing authority should be understanding and talking to as to an educator, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and is that I mean we we've talked about it at a sort of the local level, but that that sort of conversation really should be happening at, at all levels, right? I mean it's yes, there's there's a lot of specific conversations that can happen at the local level, but it's really I mean it should be happening in terms of uh, federal advocates as well, federal education advocates and federal housing advocates. Oh, I mean, it, it really should be happening yeah. at all levels. Yeah, right. Absolutely. I mean, just like yeah. the Department of Ed should be and has done some work with HUD and vice versa. Yeah, there was that, um, I think toward the tail end of the Obama administration, there was a, um, it was sort of like a, a call to action between the uh, three secretaries, uh, John King, uh, Secretary of Education, uh, Secretary Castro at HUD, and I think Secretary Fox of Transportation, and they came out with sort of this call to action that, hey, we need to collaborate more deeply at, at really all levels of, of policymaking because these issues are so inextricably linked. So hopefully um, we can we can see more of that coordination uh, over time. Absolutely. I know it's a well, big yeah. topic, but but like you said, so important. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Heather, um, this has been uh, really, really fascinating. I wanted to uh, make sure, is there, is there any other uh, things that you would say to the audience and, and leave them with before we, uh, before we call it a day? No, thanks for leading me through this fun conversation. It's been enjoyable. Yeah, yeah, this was fun, and hopefully we can uh, continue to, to tease out the connections between uh, housing and education, and I certainly look forward. I've, I've been a big fan of your work for a long time, and I, I'm always looking to what you're putting out next, so I'll be, I'll be interested in your future work and and thanks for all that you're doing um, uh, to to assist the cause thank you